All right, let's look at Titus chapter 2 as we uh, walk through this incredible chapter. We began, you know, some overview last week, but we can get into details now. If somebody's willing to read for us, I would appreciate it. Titus 2, 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself the people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay, fantastic. So, um, in chapter one, you know, among other things, we establish godly um, uh, leaders for local church, a uh, plurality of elders that meet certain criteria. Uh, but now the focus is on the laity or on the church members. And it seems that both the leadership and the uh, members together uh, present to the world, present to the world a healthy church for the sake of the salvation of lost people. Because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to people. And the, the most powerful uh, weapon really in the hands of of the Holy Spirit for the advancement of the gospel is a healthy local church it is the most effective it's far more effective than a lone ranger evangelist or a very talented missionary working alone by far it's more effective than that or even than a mission agency the best mission agencies like the uh, International Mission Board send out church planters all over the world. And they are to plant healthy churches because that's what's going to do it. Uh, that combined also with the Christian family, working in concert. You have Christian families and you have healthy churches. That together is the greatest vehicle or machine for the propagation of the gospel. It reminds me also of Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount, very familiar. In Matthew 5, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's focus on you are the light of the world. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on its stand. And then you have a beautiful picture in Revelation 1 of seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches of Asia Minor, local churches but they're presented as lampstands. So in other words, the church, a healthy church that's running well, is the best kind of lampstand for the light of the gospel shining in a dark place. So you want to be able to evangelize your neighbors by bringing them to church on Sunday. 
so that they can see how they interact with each other. You can see how people deal with each other. And there is an expectation, going back to Titus, that the people have made progress from what Cretans always are. Remember? Liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. We would hope that the Christian Cretans aren't that way. We want them to do better. Why? So that the gospel can shine and people can say, hey, I want that. I want, it. I want what's going on there. And so fundamentally, then, um, the, the church is to be a city on a hill, a light up on its stand, giving light to everyone in the surrounding areas. And sadly, often churches aren't that. They're actually a scandal. Uh, speaking of the Jews in uh, Romans 2.24, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, I think that could be said of some bad churches too, don't you think? Because of the reputation they have in that community, God's name is blasphemed because of how you are. Um, and so, uh, Titus, uh, the idea here is we hope for better than that. So we're zeroing in on healthy church leaders in chapter 1 being a certain way, but now what does a healthy church look like? And so he says in two one, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And then he goes into these categories of people. Remember I said it was like a matrix two by two. And so what are the, what are the, the categories that he's looking at? The four categories, actually five. There's five categories, but first we'll just deal with the, with the, uh, the first two matrix, two by two. What is he looking at here? Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. So you got men and women, old and young. All right? Each of those categories brings something different, at best, in a healthy way, to a local church. All right? So let's look at each of those categories before we look at the verses. What should older men bring to a healthy church, at best? What do you want to see from older men in a local church? To set an example for the younger ones, and he gives an example of being self-controlled and dignified. Okay. Maturity, role modeling, Wisdom, experience, okay. Uh, how about older women? Likewise. Likewise, so the same thing. Uh, but there are different roles. The men will have different roles than, than women. I know this is cultural heresy that there are gender-based roles, but there are. Uh, gender-based roles right here in Titus 2. We're going to see them. But uh, again, you got that role modeling. All right, so older, younger, men, women, that's the... the two-by-two two matrix and all that. Um, what's, what are some of the problems with older men? And maybe also older women. Let's focus. What would be a downside for older men? What constitutes an older man? I don't know. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're not sure how to define it yet. I guess if the AARP is sending you things, you know, or you've got certain price breaks at the theater, you can know if you're starting to get, you know, a you know, cheaper meal at Golden Corral. You know, you got you you've got some some indication, Chris. I don't know if that's happened to you yet, brother, uh, but maybe it has. All right. So what? I'm sorry. All right. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. So, Lynn, you were saying, uh, what are some of the drawbacks sometimes that happens with older men? I think uh, up here okay. we get old, and I think the secret to an older man being able to be successful in Helping a younger man is to, even though birthdays come very quickly, maybe in our minds we are clear on the word and we're able to, to, to be able to share that word with a younger man. And then, too, it's easy for an older man or any man for that matter to go off the rail sometime. And they need, hopefully, if they're sound in what this word says you can get the ship right very quickly. Okay. I think we talked about this somewhat last time, but I think it's worth repeating. What do older men bring to the table? We've already covered that. What what do younger men bring to the table of a local church? Strength. Strength. Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Vi vision. Energy. Like we we can change the world. All right. We can, we can change the world. Not just we can, we must change the world. We're here to do that. We're talking about from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. That work's not done yet, right? It's not done yet. So we, have a, we have a journey to travel yet. We can do it. The worst of old men is like, no, we can't. 
You know, been there, done that. That ship has sailed. That ship has sailed. Seen a lot of those efforts fail over the years. So you become like the ultimate buzzkill to a young man's visionary enthusiasm. May I just urge, don't do that. All right? This is a good partnership at best, right? Let's talk about the best case scenario of older men and younger men working together. We've already said what the older men bring to the table, and we just said a moment ago what the younger men bring to the table. Do you see that as a good partnership when done well? You got experience with the older men, you got wisdom, but you don't have the dark side of that'll never work. Or being threatened by their youthful enthusiasm or their youthful energy, you're threatened. You're not threatened by it, you want it because you're going to die soon, relatively soon, compared to them normally. And so you know you've got to pass that baton on. You're not going to be around. You want the work of Christ to continue, right? You want them to take, step up and take that leadership, right? So that's a good partnership. So it's good to know the advantages and disadvantages. The advantages of the, of the older men are wisdom, experience, a maturity, stability. Encouragement. Yeah, they can, they can do that, and, you know, being encouraged. I'm talking about older men. Um, they bring that um, guidance. So... There is a, a possibility with younger men of a zeal without knowledge, right? They, they've got passion, but they don't know how to direct it. They don't know where to, where to put it. And so the older men can say, hey, this, I think, is the best way for that, that vision, that passion to go through. So that's a good partnership. You want to see that. So an older man, too, has a life experience. They have made mistakes. And they possibly can share this mistake with a younger man and prevent a lot of, of the problems that would come along that they should. Yeah. Why would, why would older men feel threatened by younger men, especially younger leaders, visionary leaders, energetic leaders? Why would they feel threatened by them? They don't want to give up power. They don't want to give up that power. What else? They think they're wise enough think you're going to lead in a wrong direction. You're going to go in a bad way, bad direction. They see a stronger growth. Okay. Yeah, they feel threatened by them. They're, they're worried about, am I going to be remembered well? What's my legacy? They're worried about their legacy. Sometimes older men can be that way. And I think the thing is, some humility goes a long way. You know, it is appointed to each one of us to die. And after that, to face judgment. That's coming. And I think it's just wise for older men to just be ready for that and not be threatened by that, actually welcome it. Isn't it better by far to depart and be with Christ? But isn't the work of Christ's kingdom going to continue on long after you're gone? And don't you want it to? Don't you want it to do well? So just the ability to step aside and let the next generation come along is pretty vital, I would think. It's, it's just realistic, and it's humble. But we've seen, I've seen both sides of that equation. I've seen people that don't, they're threatened by them. They don't want to give up the power, as you said. They're crotchety and irritable because they don't physically feel well day after day. It's hard when you're hurting, physically hurting, when you're, you know, you've got maladies that are burdening you. It's hard to be cheerful. I understand that. But you can set an example. And say, look, you know, I am hurting, but I don't have to. I don't have to let my physical pain dictate being unkind to people around me. I mean, isn't Jesus a role model for that? Do you see Jesus being other-centered on the cross? How was he other-centered while he was nailed to the cross and bearing the sins of the world? Toward his mother. Cared about his mother. Cared about John. Forgive them forgiving those that killed him, thief on the cross. So there's no excuse for hurting people to be rude and mean to people around them. You don't have to do that. It's not a given that because you're in pain that you would be crotchety and irritable and all that. So there are some people that, that just do it well. They're older men and women that are not irritable. Um, they're they're sweet-tempered, they're kind, and they bring the best the best to the table. So that's what we should aspire to, wouldn't you think? You know, in our in our latter stages. Go ahead. Man. Younger men can also uh, prevent a lot of that. And an older man, if he's good, willing to listen, because they do have new ideas. And a lot of the ideas are good. Sure. Uh, and so you you can have the ability to encourage them in their new ideas, yeah. and at the same time caution 
where you feel like maybe that's not such a good idea. Yeah, and I think both older men and younger men need humility to make that relationship work. The younger men need to not be arrogant about it and say, you know, uh, the future's with me. I mean, your day has passed and all that. That's rudeness. It's unkind. And you're, it's short-sighted because soon it's going to be you and some young person's coming along. It's not going to take long. Arrogance. Yeah. Father Paul uses the word worthy of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, need to, you may not get the respect you deserve, but you need to act worthy of it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think sometimes that uh, the young men don't want to receive words from their dads or from older men. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be accepted. And it's really hard for the older man to get through to them. Mm-hmm. Even though I, I feel good about my kids, I didn't have problems with them coming up. But now that they're grown, it's a little bit more difficult for them to take advice from me. Yeah, and I think Herb, I think the problem is always pride, right? That's you got to kill it. Both older, younger men, women, all four categories. Get rid of the pride, because pride is what hinders the sweet relationship between the generations and the genders. So that there wouldn't be that pride. Um, instead, just humility to accept the role that you have and work together. I mean, there's something so big going on here. We're talking about the salvation of souls, right? We're talking about the grace of God that brings salvation to people. That's what we're talking about here. Let's do what we can to make that look beautiful. Let's do what we can that the Word of God would not be maligned, but instead it would be held in honor. You know, uh, that's what we're trying to do. So a healthy local church in which men and women, old and young, are all functioning well, makes the Word of God look beautiful, makes it look attractive. That's the work here. It's bigger than any of us. So it's worth putting aside our petty differences or our prideful things and all that. I mean, we, we should be humble, shouldn't we? I mean, think about Luke 17, 7 through 10. Could somebody read that, actually? I would love that. Somebody read that. Somebody go to Luke 17 and read 7 through 10. It's like the ultimate humbling parable for the servants of Christ. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline your table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done that's the whole parable right there that that is one of the more convicting parables you'll ever hear jesus told that parable to his servants and what's he saying don't expect to be thanked when you've done your duty and don't expect that i'm going to serve you you're supposed to serve me and when you've done everything you are commanded to do you have earned the right to say the following words We are unworthy servants who have only done our duty. That's the end of the parable. If that's not strong meat, I don't know what is. That is a humbling parable, isn't it? The best you'll ever do is to be able to say to Jesus, I did everything you wanted me to do. I was obedient today. It's like, well, all right, but I'm not going to say thank you or I'm not going to praise you or any of that. Now, here's the thing. He does praise us. He does say, well done, good and faithful servant. He does all that, but we don't deserve it. We shouldn't demand it. The best we could ever do is say we are unrighteous servants. We've only done our duty. Duty. So to have that humble attitude, older men, go back to Titus, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, just be humble and say the best we can do is be servants of Christ who do our duty. We're all in this together to make Christ appear glorious, to make the kingdom appear delightful. All right, let's walk through the details now. Teach verse 2, the older men to be uh, temperate, my translation says. What is that for you guys, ESV people? Temperate? temperate. All right, sober minded. All right, so temperate, sober minded, like judicious, self controlled. There's a lot of self control feel here. All right, so you're temperate, you're, you're frugal, careful in your diet, careful in your lifestyle, et cetera, temperate. 
And then as Chris said a moment ago, worthy of respect. What does that mean to you guys? To be a man, an older man who's worthy of respect. Just because you're an older man, right? <laughs> I think, Chris, that's not what you had in mind. What do you think it means for a man to be worthy of respect? I think to, to live in a way that you've not sort of compromised, you know, you've not exasperated your children, you've not, um, you know, uh, you've you loved your wife in a you know, proper and appropriate way, and you've, you've uh, been honest in your business dealings, you've set good examples for your family, and you basically, like I said, you just conducted yourself in a way that somebody's not going to come along and discredit you for, for not taking your advice because it's consistent with your character. Yeah, so be the kind of man that people, that the younger men will want to imitate. Just be that kind of man. And, and for you uh, to, uh, to go before the Lord, Psalm 139, say, search me and know me, show me if there's anything in me that's not worthy of respect. You could ask your wife. She'll tell you. <laughs> She'll be eager to tell you. All right? Um, you know, what are some ways I could grow so that people will respect me? Things like that. But that's what he's saying. Uh, worthy of respect. And then self-controlled is not much different than temperate. But just, you know, you're careful, you're moderate in your, in your appetites. You're not enslaved to anything. And then sound meaning healthy, and we talked about this last week, healthy in faith. It doesn't say the faith, so it could be just you have a sound faith. Your faith is healthy. Faith is the eyesight of the soul by which you see invisible spiritual realities. So here is a man who is a man of faith. He sees the invisible God. He's pleasing the invisible Christ. He sees invisible judgment day coming. He's living that kind of a life. He's sound in faith. Or it could be sound in doctrine. It, could, it possibly could be that. But you're a healthy man of faith. And then also in love and in endurance. Obviously the word love is the goal of everything in, in the Christian life. Love for God, love for others, that's where we're heading. That's, it's, heaven is a world of love. Salvation is all about love. Love for God and love for others. So here's a man who is a loving man. He loves God. He loves Christ. He loves God's people. He loves God's word. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. He's a man of love, characterized by love. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrong. That's what he's like. He's a man sound in love he's a loving man and then uh also in endurance or perseverance what does that word mean to you and why is that important for older men to be to display endurance you need endurance, you need endurance in order to run the race well and finish well okay you keep it up endurance is what it takes yeah so you're you're i'm sorry it means you're determined yeah at the stamina to get through it yeah you don't give up and so some of it, and we've talked about this many times in this Bible study before, and we've graduated some of our friends, haven't we? Some of our brothers. And that is to die well. So how does endurance relate to dying well? First of all, what does it mean to die well? With integrity, with your face intact. Okay. Be at peace. Be at peace. Not afraid to die. I always say about our faith that endures to the end. Okay. The faith. Like the last encounters your family has with you, you're speaking words of hope. You believe with all your heart that all of your best things are about to come to you. You really believe that. You believe that you're going to a city and a world with foundations whose architect and builder is God, and you've been your whole life you've been pointing toward that. Now you get to be there. And, and you die well. You die filled with hope. Knowing that the promises haven't been fulfilled yet. Hebrews 11. They've not received the things promised yet. But they're coming. And you're excited. And so you put that on display for your grandchildren, right? And your, and your kids. And their spouses. You, you die well. And that takes endurance, doesn't it? Because you're in pain. And it's hard. And, and life is tough at the end. It's, you know, the body that's sown, it's sown in dishonor. I mean, think about that. Your body's going to be sown in dishonor. What does that mean? It means the disease breaks you down. You don't look the same. I've seen it happen. I could list names now where the last time I saw that person, I almost didn't recognize it. 
literally didn't almost didn't recognize who they were. I can say names, but I won't. But I'm just telling you, the, their physical condition was so degenerative that they did not look like the person I'd known through my whole relationship with them. And yet, despite all of that, you're like, I expected this. This is the mortal body. This is the body of death. But it doesn't, I, you know, I want to lay aside, as Peter said, the tent of this body. I'm looking forward to going into my resurrection life. So you die well, that's endurance. All right. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. And Satan's attacks and it'll stop as we get older. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something we have to have endurance for, Amen. not give up the fight because it's been so long. Yeah. So what is the relationship between hope and endurance? Between hope and what? Endurance. Hope and endurance. Hope is, a, I would say, a base foundation for endurance. If you don't have hope, what are you enduring? If you have no hope, you're not going to endure, right? You're going to give up. It's the fuel of endurance. That's what it is. You really believe the best is yet to come. Hope brings endurance. It does. Let me tell you one of my favorite final words or last. I've, I've collected from church history great final statements. There's some great ones. But Adnarm Judson... He's one of my favorites. He said, I'm not weary of this world and I'm not weary of this work. But when the Lord calls me, I'll be like a schoolboy on the final day of school. <laughs> so, I mean, isn't that a great statement? That's Paul in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. I can't lose. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I'd rather go and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now that's a happy person who dies well, lives well, dies well, endurance. You want to be like that. You want to keep living as long as you can because it'll be fruitful labor. But if the Lord calls you, you'd be thrilled to go. And that's just a beautiful thing that an older man can display for younger, younger men. And also you want to give them endurance because you want to give the men, the young men, a sense that their visionary leadership and the great plans they have for the kingdom of God are going to take endurance if they're going to come to fruition. You've got to stick with it. There's going to be a lot of opposition. There's going to be a lot of setbacks. So you can give them that, that counsel uh, talking about that. Any other thing about older men? Well, this whole thing we're discussing, but I think if, if we don't have this foundation... And there's so many churches that don't teach it, and that's why there's so many problems that come away. They are. You know, they're not living up to God's word. For sure. Let's go on now to the next category, older women. All right, verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, I'll tell you what, you read these words, do they strike you as controversial? I mean, you would think, like, what's wrong with this, right? But would they be seen to be controversial by our general culture, our surrounding culture? Why? What's, what's controversial about this older woman section here? They don't understand gender and authority, gender-based roles, okay? What's the focus of a woman's life based on these words here in Titus? Loving, husband and Loving your husband, your children, and making the home. Being a homemaker. Like we use, used to use that expression a lot. What is a homemaker? What does that mean to be a homemaker? Makes the dwelling a comfortable, loving place for her husband and the children that they raise. Yeah, uh, it's a base that's, that's well-ordered, beautiful, peaceful, a place, a safe harbor where you get renewed and refreshed. How valuable would you say that is in this world? <laughs> It's very valuable. 
But feminism came along in the early part of the 20th century and then ramped up across the rest of the uh, century say that that's not enough for a woman. That's not a valuable work for a woman to do. She should be out in the workplace, you know, holding down a job, making a salary, doing all this sort of stuff. When the whole thing was a big swindle because, as you've noticed, the wife's salary has been absorbed now so that you need two incomes to have a kind of lifestyle that one income was sufficient for decades ago. You know what I mean? I'm talking about. It was enough to have one breadwinner and then a woman who stayed at home, a wife who stayed at home as a homemaker, and you could pay for that with groceries and gas for the car and all that. You could do all that. But now it's just been absorbed. So it was a big swindle financially. You didn't gain anything. But now you're at a detriment if you're just one income. It's going to be hard for you unless you make a lot of money. So, speaking about the woman's part and so forth, the biggest, I saw the biggest change during World War II. When all the men were gone to war, I mean, all the things, the women went to work in the factories and the ammunition, uh, making ammunition and stuff like this, and all. I mean, they, uh, it was complete where the men were, were making the money or whatever, supporting the home and everything. Now they were gone, and the women moved into the informal world, right. especially in in the defense of the country and everything all, but that was the change, you know, and then when the war was over with, the women said, well, you know, look, I'm making a living, I'm making more than you did, and stuff like that, I'm, you know, don't come home and tell me how to, how to do things or anything. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, there's a lot of sociological change that happened, and maybe World War II is a good line of demarcation, but I think the assault had already started before World War II, I think with uh, the women's suffrage movement, and then there were proto-forms of feminism that came along. But fundamental to it was a denigration of the value of a home. That, that the very thing, Keith, you were talking about just wasn't seen to be that valuable. And let's add children as well. Raising children was denigrated as a woman's work, right? That, that that's not worthwhile, which is ridiculous. I can't imagine anything of more strategic value than raising the next generation, right? And more complexity and perseverance, all right? You think about what it takes to bring an infant home from the hospital and 18 years later present him or her to the world as ready to be educated in college or whatever, hold down a job, socialized, educated, and then in a Christian home, evangelized, converted, and ready for a life of service to Christ. That's 18 years of unremitting, creative, intelligent labor. And to say that that wasn't worth anybody's time, it just seems amazing to me. It seems like an overt satanic lie. So you've got this focus. Do you agree that the Titus II women focus here is on the home? It's on marriage. It's on parenting and it's on making a home a beautiful home. Would you agree that the words are saying that? All right, because it's not anything I'm making. I'm not putting my chauvinist spin on this here. This is in the text, all right? Going back to what Keith said, I'm thinking about the 23rd Psalm, right? Think about that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's next? Lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Don't you think a Christian home will do that for you? That's where you get restored. You get fed, you get loved, you get encouraged, and you get sent back out again to get beat up again by the world. Anyway, but that's what a home can do. Lynn, go ahead. Well, I think, too, one thing this Scripture doesn't say is that a man is to rule his wife. Mm -hmm. You've actually called in this class that your wife is a wise counsel and you need to listen. Sure. And so the fact that you share the responsibilities in a home as far as decision making and use her abilities to counsel rather than just going off like a long ranger and trying to rule everything. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are two f flaws that men fall into. One is, is uh, kind of 
self self-feeding domination like he's ego so he's dominating his wife is abusive um or but more commonly it's passivity where he really isn't leading at home um and and so i think both of those happen that's where disobedience comes in mm-hmm. and disrespect yeah for sure so so the the home home here is worthwhile and valuable that's all i'm saying i'm just making a, a simple statement here a well-ordered Christian home is, is worth achieving. And it isn't just the wife that does it, but that is her focus, you know, um, that she would be like that. So let's walk through what he says to older women. First of all, they are to be reverent in the way they live. That's my translation. What do you guys have? Reverent in behavior. In behavior. Reverent. What does that word mean to you, reverent? It means you're humble. Okay. You're grateful. You're aware of God's presence. So maybe pious, similar to pious. There's a sense of sober-mindedness. You know, like I think about Isaiah 66, which says, uh, you know, to tremble at God's Word. There's a sense of the seriousness of life and of God and of the role. So these these older women, I'm talking about older women now, being reverent in their behavior means they're mindful of God, I think, at all times. They're mindful of the holiness of God and of the seriousness of life and of the Word of God. That's where I think the word reverent comes from. They're reverent toward God. Does that make sense? Uh, do you have any thoughts, any other thoughts on that, on the idea of older women being reverent? All right, let's keep going. And it says then, not slanderers. All right, a, a partner, partner crime is gossip, right? So gossip and slander, they're very similar. But, you know, there is a tendency that, you know, people have, but perhaps the focus is on women here, to be, you know, running their mouth and saying things bad about people that aren't around, tearing people down with their talk. And this is a sin for both men and women to do, but the focus here is on older women, that they would not be um, slanderers. So what does that mean to you, that a woman would not be a slanderer? Speaking against someone else's character. Okay. Somebody who's not around, tearing them down. Why would somebody do that? Why do people do that? Why do they slander? Why do they gossip? So raise their own. <laughs> right. Raising their own status. Exactly. Or sometimes, you know, it says uh, that uh, gossip is like a tasty morsel. You know, it's like, it's, it's almost like, you know, like a, a bonbon, like candy that you can't resist. You gotta, just got to tell that story about you know some salacious thing or whatever you're just going to run your mouth and say things that tear somebody's or trouble yeah something like that so but but tears their character down and it's just you got to resist that temptation so i'm not getting involved in that i'm not a slanderer i'm not a gossiper then it says not addicted to much wine so again we got that issue of self-control like we have with the men and with the elders um so what does this say about the women they're not addicted to wine Older women. Picture you kind of get is if they're being irreverent, they're sitting around drinking a lot of wine and talking all their friends down. Yeah. You know, and the opposite of that would be reverent, to yeah. temperate, and you know, if you do have a glass of wine, it's limited. It's, yeah. And then the conversation is always well seasoned and uplifting instead of beating down. So you're talking about a woman who's serious minded about life, self controlled in the way she approaches it. Um, you know, disciplined. And she's careful with her mouth because in this Titus 2 passage, she's going to use her mouth well, especially with other women, younger women. She's going to speak well about her husband and about their children and about the Word of God. She's, she's a reverent woman who uses her tongue wisely so that you know people want to listen to her. And we've met women like this, haven't we? Older women that you just want to hear what they have to say because they're worthy of respect. So that's what we're talking about here. So um, they are able to teach what is good. Sound doctrine. Um, They're teachers of the Word of God. They're teachers of what is good. And then it says they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. So here's the thing. 1 Timothy 2 makes it plain. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So they're not to formally teach men doctrine in the life of the local church. But does that mean that they can have no teaching ministry at all? 
All right. So, Chris, what kind of teaching ministry can and should an older woman have? She can minister to the younger woman because of her experience in raising her own family. Mm -hmm. Now, she's got all that good experience to pass along mm -hmm. to explain to the younger woman that it's not just a drudgery. Sure. You're involved in, in a good work here. For sure. Now, the focus here is very practical. Being a good wife, a good mother, a good homemaker. That's true. But keep in mind that Mary sat at Jesus' feet drinking in his doctrine, and Jesus supported that, right? So I think a woman can teach, an uh, older woman can teach younger women doctrine, uh, biblical teachings on prayer, or on holiness, or on evangelism, or any topic at all in the Bible. Not just being a good wife and mother and a good homemaker, but anything at all that's in the Bible she can teach to younger women and give them a thirst for sound doctrine and theology. I know it's not the home base of this passage, but I think it's implied in Jesus elevating and supporting Mary's contemplative role in drinking in Jesus' doctrine. She sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his doctrine. And so I would, I would support a woman teaching other women anything at all that would be helpful, any sound doctrine at all. So in our church, we have from time to time women's BFL classes carefully marked with like yellow tape outside the door or something like that. I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, these are only women classes so that they're not teaching other men. But they are teaching sound doctrine. And we have some excellent teachers in our church. And they can be very powerful teachers with the children. Yeah. Up to a point. Sure. Eventually when they reach the male reaches the age of reason, yeah. the father should step in and perhaps be more yeah. dominant. But still, if, if, if the child's a minor... You know, the mother's still going to be pouring doctrine in. And my feeling is you can, the woman, the mother can teach anything at all in theology to the kids. We want the kids to be formed and shaped theologically so they can teach children as well. Very good. All right, so um, then they can train the younger woman, it says, first, to love their husbands and their children. I think the contrast here would be as opposed to resenting them. Resenting the life of a wife and a mother. All right, so the older woman can say, it is a good thing for you to love your husbands. All right, now keep in mind, I know Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives. What does it tell the wives to do? Submit. Submit and respect. But this verse says what? They should also what? Love their husbands. They should love their husbands. Not just husbands love their wives. The wives should love their husbands. And what does that mean to love that they should love their husbands? Dinner is ready every night. <laughs> Here we go. We are recording this, so we can we can get this out on the website. An emotional bond, also. Yeah. Okay. It's very important that that the relationship be, you know, based on. Uh, Christ's love for us, and, and surely among spouses, they should be a love sure. that is expressed and shared. I mean, I don't think we have to overthink it here. It's just, does the husband feel loved by his wife? Does he feel that she loves, loves him? That's all. Should be. Respects him as he follows Christ. Yeah. You know, but love is, you know, that's the centerpiece of the Christian faith. And it should be the center of the marriage, not just for the husband to love the wife, but for the wife to love the husband. This is Christian doctrine. I mean, first John says we should love the brothers. We should love, you know, other Christians. And if you don't, you're a liar. So foundational to the Christian religion is genuine love for other Christians. But within that Christian marriage, a genuine love that the wife has for her husband, the husband has for the wife. And like I said, let's not overthink it. They just feel loved. They just know my wife loves me. Maybe in a different way than when we first met. Maybe in a different way than, you know, when we're on our honeymoon or something like that. But I genuinely feel esteemed and cared for and loved by my wife, that kind of thing. Yeah. Isn't this um, being said the way it is contrary to a lot of the culture of that time where women were not seen as um, worthy of love even? Right. Christ's elevation, as you were talking earlier, yeah. 
the place of women here, they're, they're being put in a relationship of love, not as just a servant in the home, yeah. which is yeah. radical for that time. No, this is a genuine Christian marriage is what this is, and it's patterned after Christ in the church. I'm going to ask you a question. Is there a mutual love between Christ and the church? Mutual love. It's not just that Christ loved the bride. It's that the bride loves Jesus. It's both ways, isn't it? And so you want to put that on display before your children and grandchildren, right? That there's a genuine affection and a yearning and a, and a love for each other. But let me tell you something. You know that the world of flesh and the devil assault that within a marriage every day of your marriage. I mean, you just know too much about each other. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, we've seen each other, you've seen each other's sin nature. You've been immersed in each other's sin nature. It's hard. So there has to be forgiveness. There has to be a willingness to cover sins, to not keep a record of wrongs, to just have that affection and to work at it. Anyway, so this is... an interesting, Pastor Davis. We're talking about this because you go back and you think how, you, you know, the woman met, they first met each other, and they're sharing things of how, oh, I would like to do this. I mean, so like 10, 20 years later, hey, he told me he likes to go and do this. So she loves him and says, guess what? We're going to go do this. And he, you just see the expression on the guy's face. And you know that it makes, you know, there's a, there's a love that she's, you know, you know, given him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's important that the wife love her husband and her children. I think it's easier for a mother to love her children than for her, her to love her husband. I think that's just the case. I think in general, there's a strong affinity between women and their children. And they're going to get the best of their focus and all that sort of stuff. And so this verse says, hey, don't do that. The first relationship needs to be toward the husband. And, a, and an affection for the husband. For a, for a woman should be toward her husband. The, the children should all know. Even the grown children should know. Mom loves dad more than he loves any of us. Now, I don't think that's always the case. I think that that, that can be not the case. But that is the standard. And what we get from Titus here, Paul to Titus, Titus to the older women, is the doctrine leads out. This is what the Word of God says. Now do it. If you're not doing it, then repent and do it. This is the standard here. So love the older women should be teaching their younger women to love their husbands and their children in that order. They're not equal. In that order, they should love their husbands. And the children should all say, yeah, my mom loved my dad more than the, she loved. But she loved us. Definitely loved us, but she loved dad. So that's the standard, and if it's not, then just repent and, and make changes and do what's needed, but that's what's being stated here. And then it says, to be self-controlled and pure. We already covered self-control, but that's a big theme. Pure being free from corruption, free from evil. Again, these are older women, that they are pure in their hearts. And then it says to be, you know, one translation I remember says keepers at home. This translation says busy at home. Working at home. Working at home. Yeah, how much work is it at home? Especially when there's growing kids. Think about that. Let's say you got four kids, all 18 down to age nine. How much work is there in running that whole thing? Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, there's groceries, there's laundry, there's, you know. I remember some time ago I was speaking to a guy who had an overrealized patriarchal view. I'm not going to go into details, but this individual did not come home and do much to help, and there were a lot of kids at home. And I said, friend, let me tell you something. It's all hands on deck during this phase of your family life, all right? Your job working together with your wife is to make sure your kids are well-fed, bathed, prayed for and instructed, sung with, and put peacefully in bed every night. And that's going to be all you can do between when you get home and when that happens, whatever their bedtime is. So do it. It's got nothing to do with the male role or the female role. It just has to do with the fact that there is so much work to be done, we do it together. But it's a big job to be a keeper at home and have the home running well. It takes a lot, of, a lot of work. This is why women tend to be very practically minded, administrative minded. You know, they're rubber meets the road thinkers. You know what I mean? Um, so if, if you were to say, I don't know how spontaneous you go, hey, let's go on a vacation. Just 
Don't don't just jump in the car. They won't do that. They don't like that. It's like, no, I need to know where we're going, how far, what kind of packing I need to do. Is it cold weather, warm weather? They think like this. So at any rate, any other comments on being busy at home? All right, then it says to be kind. These are older women. Have you ever met an unkind older woman? No comments needed. I've met unkind people of all categories, but don't be like that. Don't be a crotchety older woman. All right. Don't like, we don't want to be crotchety older men. So she should be kind. If there's a strength, isn't there to being a kind person, you know, she's a strong woman. She can be kind and she's consistently kind. And then what does it say next? Subject to their husband. What does that mean, Jack? That she should, the older women should teach the younger women to be subject to their husbands. I think respected husbands are all respected. But his authority is as a his, as head of the family and yeah. so forth and all to not contradict or complication or anything, you know, to to work, to be together in their decisions and all to find that area there that um, that working against each other and support each other. Yeah, so there's a basic respect that should be in a godly older woman teaching the younger woman, or a younger woman too, a respect toward her husband. It says that in Ephesians 5, the wife should see to it that she respects her husband. What does it mean for her to respect her husband? Let him be the ultimate judge after due discussion. I mean, wives have an obligation, or at least, and, and husbands have an obligation to listen to their family and their wives, especially. Yeah. But ultimately, if a decision has to be made, and and a, a certain reverence for his role in the family, because it says wives in Ephesians five, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So in a similar way that you submit to the Lord, you should submit to your husband. So with that same kind of respect. Now it's hard for the wife to do because Satan and her own sin nature attacks respect all the time. It attacks. How does that happen? How does a wife get to the point where she doesn't really respect her husband? What happens in that journey where she just doesn't respect her husband? He disrespects her. Okay, his bad behavior. All right, he's a sinner. So she has to somehow, despite the fact that he's a sinner, to obey the word herself, still respect him. Perhaps the best picture of this, of course, is in the Old Testament when Noah got drunk. Remember this story? And um, Ham went in and, and saw his father naked in his drunken stupor and went out and told his brothers, brothers Shem and Japheth. Remember? And Shem and Japheth, hearing about this, put a cloak on their shoulders and went in backwards and dropped it over their father to cover his nakedness. Well, why did they do that? It's an odd moment. Why did they do that? Respect. It was respect. They had respect for Noah. This was not his finest moment, not at all. But they covered it. I think that's what a wife has to learn how to do with her husband. He's going to mess up. He's going to sin. She still has to cover that with respect if she's going to be obedient to the Word of God. She's not exempt if he is. Now, as Lynn says, the husband can make it hard by, by his sin nature, but she still has to. I mean, he is a sinner, you know, at any rate. Any other thoughts on the older women teaching the younger women to be subject to their husbands? So that what? What's the outcome according to Titus? So that no one will malign the word of God. What does that mean to malign the word of God? Speak, disrespect it. So in other words, the reputation of the gospel and of the Bible in general seems to be tied to the way Christian wives are with their husbands. At least it is in this verse, right? So the fact is, if the family relationship is running well, the husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church and the wife is submitting well, the word of God shines in that situation. It looks good. And you're commending it at that point. 
Now, it, it, it kind of reminds me of that um, moment with, um, uh, in Esther chapter 1 where um, uh, the king commanded his wife, um, what was her name? Vashti. Vashti to come in and she wouldn't come. Now, there's some indication that he was being disrespectful toward her, that she was supposed to wear her crown and nothing else. I don't know that. Um, maybe, maybe not. But there was a concern among the Persian nobles at that point that wives would follow Vashti's example and that there would be no end to the disrespect that would happen throughout the kingdom. And, they, and in their paganism, they knew that that was something that would be detrimental. So there seems to be a similar pattern, only this is openly taught in the Word of God, that if wives are respecting their husbands, then the Word of God won't be maligned. That seems to be the, the issue here. And by the way, we've noted that this, so that no one will malign the Word of God, we've seen three different times in chapter 2. We haven't gotten to them all yet. But that the Word of God's reputation is tied to Christians doing well in their various roles. Okay? Any other comments about the Titus 2 woman? You know? yeah, doesn't this tie into Ephesians 5.22? Yeah, tell me what that says. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Yeah. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. His body, what she is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's linked, absolutely linked to that. The moment that they take vows, the moment they become husband and wife, um, he becomes her head. Now, that doesn't say what kind of head he is. He's a good head, a wise head, a loving head, a, a harsh, whatever. There's all kind of adjective. But the, the actual fact is established by her taking vows. He is her head, period. God sees it that way. And that's, that's it. So the question is, is it being lived out in a godly way? That's the desire. Okay, so fundamentally we see here the role modeling that older women can have with younger women. So anyone else want to comment on that? Why it's good for older women to be role models for younger women in a church? The way that I've been feeling and teaching is just this way that um, passing things rightly down to the next generation. Seems like you do that through modeling, and it also does, you know, does happens through intentional teaching. Yeah. And um, and so it feels like to me that. Um, Perhaps we haven't really taken that weight seriously. I think we talked or alluded earlier to things like handing off responsibilities for raising children to daycares and all that, and yeah. because of the two-income need and all that. And I see the struggle with that, but it also um, should be we should be putting a lot of weight on the importance of these verses to pass it down well to the next generation. Yeah, and I think we can help in a church by speaking highly of these roles that are given to women. You know, I've, I've said many times, literally more times than I could count, the single most strategic role there is in the world is a Christian mother with her infant children or their growing children. There is no more, no greater influence any human being has over another set of human beings than that. I mean, these are formative years in which that child's learning the so-called mother tongue. And if it's a Christian woman, mother, she's pouring the gospel into their forming minds and hearts and souls while they grow. What, more, what is more significant than that? There is no more significant role there is in the world than that. But if you talk like that in a local church, then the women realize, hey, there's a lot of respect and, and honor in being a godly wife and a godly mother. And I think... That, that's what we, we do. There's a big difference between being obedient and disobedient. Yeah. Hang on a second. Go ahead, Jim. I, I'm thinking in terms of uh, <clears throat> at the end of that time period, you mentioned 18 years, you know, and they oftentimes leave the home. I've got my first two granddaughters are almost 20, and they're uh, sophomores at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm thinking about, you know, there is an onslaught. Satan wants to take strongholds as education, right. as it is attacking the family and attacking the role of the mother, the proper role of the body. So, you know, there, the preparation is is challenged, um, and it's got to be hard and firm to to be within the child, you know, to stand up against it, yeah. stand up against that onslaught because they're going to come against it and. 
Who's it going to pour into them then? Yeah, for sure. So I think what I take away from this as a pastor, as a husband myself, um, is just the need to encourage women in these roles. And to say, you know, just like in Proverbs 31, it says her husband praises her and says, many women do excellently, but you do better than all of them. That kind of thing. That's needed, isn't it? We all need that. I think that's valuable. Jim, would you, brother, would you be willing to close in prayer? Thanks. Father, we praise and thank you, Lord, for all you can express to Titus, that we can share it and think about it, Lord, and, and, and open our eyes and recognize the light that you shine uh, on us through your word, Lord, and how it touches our, our younger lives and how it's touching our present lives and, uh, and, and those of our uh, children that come after us, grandchildren, Lord. And we just thank you for it. We thank you for this time you can share, Lord. May we uh, use the light that you've shown on us today to um, bring Jesus' glory and how we live and how we perceive and how we affect the lives of others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.